I hope to make you uncomfortable this morning. No, seriously. Seriously, hear me out. Hear me out. I hope to make you uncomfortable this morning because a comfortable Christian has never accomplished anything for the Lord. If ever a man has accomplished anything of any value or worth to the Lord, it's because he became uncomfortable in his former state. And I fear that we have been so overwhelmingly blessed as a church that has been around for 160 years and have preached the word of God for the duration of that time from the same unchanging word of God. I feel that we've been so overwhelmingly blessed to sit in a service like this so many times in our lives that we can potentially, not all, but we can potentially become numb to the transforming power of the words of this book. You know what I'm saying? What that can happen then is we can become complacent with our carnality. And complacency, dear Christian, is the ugly stepsister of contentment. Don't get the two confused. So I ask you then this morning, before we begin, will you allow the words of God to prick your heart and challenge you to examine yourself within the reflection of its pages? Can you do that? I challenge you, brothers and sisters, I challenge you to not allow yourselves to walk out those doors this morning the same person they walked in them. That is why we come here, is it not? So before we begin, I want to pray, but I don't want to pray that God would bless our time. What I want to pray is that we would have the humble heart to receive his word this morning, whatever it might be, whether exhortation or reproving or rebuke. Amen? All right, let's pray before we begin. Father, we come to you this morning, and we come sincerely, humbly before your word, Lord, seeking what you have to teach us this morning. And I pray like David, Lord, that we would take your word and that you would search our hearts and see if there be any wicked way in us that we need to change to make ourselves more like you, to align ourselves more with your book. Father, conform us more to your son's image. Make us Christians who can accomplish great things for you because of the one who's in us. We love you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Our passage this morning is in 1 Corinthians 9. We're continuing our study in the book of 1 Corinthians. And the title for our study is The Biblically Made Man. And I chose this title because of the verbiage in our passage, but also because I want to draw attention to this, a, a phrase that the world has that is the self-made man. Have you ever heard of that before? The self-made man. What is the self-made man? Well, that phrase, I did a little research, which, research, yeah, I googled it. And the self-made man is a phrase that was coined in the early 19th century from actually early uh, American uh, founding fathers of our country. And it was just referencing the success and work ethic of accomplished men. Ben Franklin is often referred to as the original self-made man. And the philosophy behind this idea of the self-made man is that a man's success lies within himself and not in outside conditions which is actually ironic and fairly humorous because if you Google the self-made man, the first thing that comes up is a link that will take you to a website for where you can pay $29 for a program that will teach you how to become a millionaire. So there you go. It's, it's, it's interesting. The, the self-made man is, <laughs> give me $29 and I'll teach you how to become a millionaire. Snake oil salesmen do not go extinct, friends. 
Many of you may, not, may know that I'm, I'm a pretty big Browns fan. I don't know, is anyone else a Browns fan in here? It's okay, okay, yeah. They have a pretty big game today, and you know, I'm, I'm a Browns fan through thick and thin, you know, for better or for worse, usually worse, but I am a Browns fan, and if you know anything about the Browns, their best player over the last decade, and this is so Browns, is an offensive lineman named Joe Thomas, but he is a big deal because he, by popular consensus, he is the best left tackle of this generation. He'll be in the Hall of Fame as soon as he's eligible. He retired last year, and Joe Thomas, he's just a likable guy. He started getting into the media as he retired and, and dabbling with sports broadcasting, and he made his rounds on ESPN and started this podcast that's really popular, and so he started getting into, you know, his next career move in just sports broadcasting, and he's, he's really witty. He's really smart and intelligent. He's actually entertaining to listen to. And for some reason, this flustered a, a local Cleveland sports radio broadcaster named Tony Rizzo. And if you don't know who he is, it doesn't really matter. I'm just, I just want you to, to hear this quote. This was like from last year as Joe Thomas is getting into sports broadcasting. He, he said on his radio show, does Joe Thomas understand that when he's done playing for the Browns, no one's going to care about him? I, said, I thought you were supposed to be a fan of the Browns, man. You know what I'll remember Joe Thomas for? He says losing. He's coming to my world now, baby. I'm a made man in this town. Most of you probably don't even know who he is. But he's a made man in this media. He says, you're coming to my world. You've got to earn your way in my world. You don't just get a free pass because you were good at playing tackle in the NFL. Good luck, Joe. Okay, why do I say all that? Many of you are like, why is he talking about the Browns? The old man lets him get up on the stage, and he's talking about the Browns. <laughs> I say this. I, it's a term of endearment. Like a father, right? Like a father. <laughs> Are we live stream? Okay. I say that because it's interesting. Well, we're playing the Steelers today. But also because the, the made man, the self-made man, this, this idea of being a made man, is, I just want you to see what the world thinks about being a made man. Because there's a sense of pride, a sense of hard work, and at times a sense of ridiculous arrogance that goes with being a made man, a self-made man. If you're humble, it can just mean your work ethic. But oftentimes, it's this arrogant pride of, I'm a made man. I work to get where I'm at, and yada, yada, yada. Okay, well, this morning, I want to show you what it looks like to be a biblically made man. Because would it surprise you if I told you that the Bible's definition of a made man is the direct opposite of the world's definition of a made man? That wouldn't surprise you. Well, let's go ahead and look at our passage this morning, and then we'll jump in and dissect it. We're going to start in verse 15 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Our passage is verses 16 through 27, but last week, just to get a little context, Jeff showed us why you pay us, because the Bible says so. But we saw that, that Paul has the, certainly the power to forbear working, and the church also has the responsibility to financially support its pastors. And, and in that vein, let's, let's read verse 15 through the end of the chapter, okay? It says, Paul says, but I have used none of these things, i.e. the power to forbear working and the other things. Neither have I written these things that it should be so done unto me, for it were better for me to die that, that any man should make my glorying void. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward, but if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. What is my reward then? Verily, that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself a servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. 
To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without the law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am, there it is, made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly. So fight I not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. So before we begin dissecting this passage this morning, I want us to understand the context because you have to understand the context if we're going to understand what this is saying to us. We're finishing chapter 9 this morning, which is going to conclude two full chapters on the theme of liberty. And 1 Corinthians 10 is going to take a, a side trail for a second, but come back to this theme of liberty. Chapters 8, 9, and 10, all about liberty. To eat or not to eat? That is the question. That's what he's talking about. Remember, 1 Corinthians 8, we saw this several weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 9. He tells us, but take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours could become a stumbling block to them are weak. Verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 8, but when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. When you sin against Christ, when you sin against the weak brethren, oh, it's when you take your liberty and make it a stumbling block. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth lest I make my brother to offend. So Paul's talking about liberty and understanding the wisdom to refrain from such liberty for the sake of the body, for the sake of the brothers. So in this same vein, 1 Corinthians 9 is Paul commenting on how he has the power, the liberty, to forbear working and to do many things, but he intentionally refrains. Why does he do that? Why does he refrain? Why does he limit his biblical freedom to partake and or participate in some things. Why does he do that? Well, that's what we see in this passage. And so this morning, we're gonna see uh, the first step in our three-step program to becoming the biblically made man, and you can give me your $29 later, is, number one, to preach the gospel willingly. Preach the gospel willingly. Verse 16 through 18, again, for though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me, yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward, but if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. What is my reward then? Verily, that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. What, is, what does it mean to preach the gospel willingly? Well, we're going to see several things in the context of this passage, what it means to preach the gospel willingly. But can we just start by saying that to preach the gospel, you must know the gospel? Amen. Do you know the gospel, friend? I don't know how you came in this morning. I, I don't know if this is your first time in our church or in any church, maybe. Maybe you're 14 years old and your parents have been dragging you here every day for 14 years. Maybe you've been coming to this church for a long time, but you're just a Sunday morning attender. Maybe you've been to our church a few times and something tragic has happened and you're starting to become a more regular attender because of tragedy in your life. I don't know. Maybe you came to church years ago and stopped coming for a time, but something has piqued your interest to get back into the swing of things, maybe starting a family or like a tragedy or something like that. I don't know what brought you in this morning, friend, but 
You have to know what the Bible tells you about yourself. The Bible tells you in Romans chapter 3 that you are a sinner that is separated from God because of your sin. Romans 3 says that there's no, not one good, no, not one. We're all sinners. We're all sinners, and that's because of the original man whose name was Adam. That in Romans 5 says, Wherefore is by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, and for that all have sinned. You are separated from God because of your sin. Because we were born in sin. And the reason we're born in sin is because Adam's sin separated him from God. God made us in Genesis chapter 1. In the image of God, he made us a three-part being. God is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And we are flesh, soul, and spirit. We were born, we were made in the image of God. But when Adam sinned, his spirit died, the Bible says. Part of him died that day. His spirit. So he lost the image of God. The image of God is being a three-part being. He's a two-part being with a dead spirit. And so the image of God is lost. And in Genesis 5, Adam bears a son, Seth, in his image, not God's image, the broken image of God. And wherefore is by one man sin, death passed upon all men. And for that, all have sinned, Romans chapter 5 tells us. So we're born into this world with a dead spirit that is separated from God because of that sin. But you know what else, friend? The Bible tells us in that same chapter, in Romans chapter 5, that, that God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But God commendeth his love toward us. That's a big but. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. God loved you so much, John three sixteen says, that he sent his only begotten son into the world so that you may have eternal life. That's what it says. He died for you. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 says that the wages of sin is death. What you earn for your sin is eternal death, not just physical death, but spiritual death separated from God. And what Revelation tells us is a lake of fire that wasn't designed for you, but for the devil and his fallen angels. But because of our sin, we're doomed to that death. The Bible refers to it as the second death. But God, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And when Jesus came to this world, he came as a human. He was 100% God, yet he was 100% man. Philippians chapter two tells us that he made himself the form of a servant and he died a sinner's death on the cross. And he hung on that cross in Calvary with a nail in each hand and a nail through his feet and thorns piercing his scalp and a spear in his side. And as he was dying, you know what he did? He looked out into eternity and he saw you, friend, sitting in this pew today, and he said, you're worth it. You're worth it. You were worth the beating beyond suffering. You were worth everything that he endured. You were worth him, him perspiring blood in the Garden of Gethsemane as he was about to drink the Father's cup. And as the Father turned his back on him and Christ cried, Aloy, Aloy, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He said, it's because you are worth it. That's why he died. And when he went to the grave, he was down three days, but the grave couldn't hold him. Because he went to the grave, he went to hell, he grabbed the keys to death and hell, and he preached victory over the fallen angels, and he led captivity captive, and he resurrected to the Father, and he conquered death and sin and hell. And 1 Corinthians 15 exclaims, O death, where is thy victory? O grave, where is thy sting? Because Christ has conquered he is victorious. He is rose from the grave. And if you, friend, will obey the scriptures, Romans chapter 10, 
and will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. The Holy Spirit that is dead inside of you, not the Holy Spirit, your spirit that is dead inside of you will be regenerated, be remade. You will be reborn, John chapter three tells us, born again in the image of Christ. You'll be a new creature. Old things are separated. All things are become new. And you're a new creature in Christ. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's what Christ did for you. Because Acts chapter four tells us there's no other name under heaven given among men by where, whereby we must be saved. Christ said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Religion won't do it. Paying good money won't do it. Doing good works won't do it. No, it's only by the name of Jesus Christ. So I ask you, friend, have you given your life to the gospel? Have you given your life to Christ? I'm gonna keep preaching here because we got things to do, but listen, if you've never done that, there's no reason to wait. You can bow your head right now and give your life to the Lord. You can accept the gospel is your own. You can ask him to be the Lord of your life and you can know without a shadow of a doubt when you leave today that you get to spend eternity in home with heaven, with God. You can do that right now. But let's keep moving. That's the gospel. If you don't know the gospel, now you know it. And it's your duty to respond. But if you know the gospel, you know what the biblically made man does? He does that right there, but he doesn't need, he doesn't require a pulpit to do it. He does it with his life. He does it wherever he goes, with whomever he meets, spreading the good news of the gospel. But what does that mean practically? Does it mean that I get up on a box on the street corner and do what I just did? Well, not necessarily. You can if you want. It might be fun. But we have some practical takeaways about what preaching the gospel willingly looks like from Paul's life in these three verses. It means that you have a humble perspective a humble perspective. Paul says, though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. Yes, it's my mouth preaching. Yes, it's me saying the words, but it is not me myself that, that would take pride in it. Why would I take pride in the gospel, O self-made man? There's no pride to be taken because God is the one who has conquered. I'm just saying the words. Galatians chapter 6, 14, but God forbid, Paul says, that I should glory, save in the cross of Christ or saving the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. He says, I don't have anything to glory in other than the cross of Christ. The only glory that I have is in that cross, 1 Corinthians 1.31, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. So there's no pride. It's a humble perspective. I, I don't get puffed up by my preaching or get puffed up by people listening to what I have to say. I, my, my preaching is effective because it reaches sinners with the good news, even though it might not go viral on Facebook with the Facebook pastors, right? I'm preaching the gospel willingly, and that means I'm preaching it with a humble perspective. But I also have an overwhelming passion, Paul says. I'm humble, but I am overwhelmingly passionate because he says, I don't glory in the gospel of Christ, but it is necessity. Necessity is laid upon me, yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel, exclamation point. That's what he says. You know what gives you desire and passion for the gospel, friend? Not being ashamed of it. Not being ashamed. Let's just be biblical here. We could be practical all day, but Romans chapter one, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. If you're in our Acts class this morning, you see why it's so important that it's also to the Greek. Because that's you. 
God came to everyone, and his offer of the gospel is for everybody, and that power to go from death to life, to be translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his dear son is powerful. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of that. And that gives you passion. That gives you passion. How can one proclaim a message with any conviction that he's ashamed of, right? You know the definition of preaching? It's just simply pleading with men to heed God's word. That's all it is. How can you plead with men to heed a message from God's word that you're ashamed of? How can you plead with men to give their lives to Christ if you're ashamed of it? And by ashamed, I don't mean that you don't like it. Of course you like it. You got saved. But you're scared of what people will think. You're ashamed of it not being politically correct, whatever it may be. You can't be ashamed of the message and have conviction and be passionate about it, like Paul says, to the, where, to the point where he says, necessity is laid upon me, yea, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. I mean, pick your side, man. If, if, are you a new creature or not? Did God make you new in his son or not? What do you have to be ashamed of? You don't have anything to be ashamed of. If you truly understand and have accepted the gospel for yourself, it should give you a burden Share it to preach it to the lost so that they can have it too. If you believe the gospel, can I tell you what you believe? If you believe the gospel and you're saved, you believe that there is an eternal place called hell and men have eternal souls and if they don't believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, they will spend eternity in that place of torment. That's what you believe if you believe the gospel. Is that what you believe? Well, then why don't you tell people? <laughs> I mean, let's, ju let's just be honest. We're in church. Can I be honest with you? The reason you don't tell people is you either don't believe it or you're ashamed of it. There's really no wiggle room. There's no wiggle room. The biblically made man or woman is not ashamed because he has a humble perspective, he has an overwhelming pa uh, passion, but he also understands that he has a responsible profession. His vocation comes with certain responsibilities. Paul says in verse 17, for if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward, but if against my will... A dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. Paul says that preaching the gospel willingly yields rewards. When we know that, if you've been studying the book of 1 Corinthians with us, we saw that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, right? When we saw the judgment seat of Christ, and after you get saved, works have nothing to do with your salvation, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. It's only through grace. It's only through faith in God's grace that you can be saved. But after you're saved, verse 10 of Ephesians 2 says that we were saved, created unto good works. And so our good works post-salvation are all about rewards. When you're judged, Christian, at the judgment seat of Christ, you're not judged on your sins. You're not judged on what you did before salvation. You are judged on how you obeyed Christ and invested the seed that he gave you in the lives of people around you. And if you do that well, you get rewards. That's what the Bible says. Paul says that if I preach willingly, I have rewards. But notice, if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me, even if Paul didn't want to do it, he had to. It was his job. Now, specifically in Ephesians chapter 3, that Paul was committed the dispensation of the gospel. I want to show you this very quickly. Ephesians 3 and verse 2. Paul's speaking to the church at Ephesus, and he says, If ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made note unto me the mystery, 
as I wrote a four and few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages, this mystery, was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That's the definition of a mystery. Before, we didn't know it, but now, through revelation of the Scripture and the Spirit, we know it. It's not still a mystery. What's the mystery? Verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, and of the same body, and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Whereof I was made a minister, according to the gift of the grace of God, given unto me by the effectual working of his power, unto me, who am less than the least of all his saints. Look at his humble perspective. Is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ? What it's not saying is that Paul started the church, or that the church began with Paul. The word church was used before Acts 9, when Paul was converted. But it was Paul that God used to unveil this mystery of the gospel, the body of Christ in the inclusion of the Gentiles. And so Paul says, I willingly, unashamedly, humbly preach the gospel with passion, but even if I didn't want to, I would have to. It's literally my responsibility. But can you see where I'm going with this? We have a responsibility to preach the gospel too, don't we? Christians, it's our job. It is our profession it's our vocation. You ought to do it willingly, but don't forget it's your job. The Great Commission, Mark 16, 15, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. 2 Timothy 4, 5, do the work of an evangelist, right? Romans chapter 10, verse 13, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, hallelujah, but how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. In verse 17, faith cometh by hearing and hearing the word of God. So we put down the old adage, preach the gospel, use words if necessary, barf. Are you kidding me, man? The gospel is words. How would you know the gospel if he didn't tell it to you in words? Preach the gospel and use words. Romans 10, 17, faith cometh by hearing, hearing the word of God. So yes, live your life according to the scriptures, but preach the gospel. Preach it willingly, preach it humbly, preach it passionately, and preach it responsibly, because it's your job, it's your profession. So preach, preacher. And next, he has a blameless position, a blameless, blameless position, verse 18. Paul said, what is my reward then? Verily, that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. Okay, now we're getting back to this theme of liberty. What is Paul's reward for preaching the gospel willingly, other than, of course, rewards at the judgment seat of Christ? He says, I make the gospel of Christ without charge. Now, at first reading, you might just think, well, that, that just means the gospel's free. Well, yeah, of course the gospel's free. It doesn't cost anything. But that's not what he's saying here. If you do a word study on the word charge in the Bible, it, the word charge or some form of it, charged, charges, you know, some form thereof is used 189 times in the Bible, and not one time does that word mean price or cost or fee. Not once. So then why would it be referring to price here? If every other time it means something else, what does it mean? Well, there's three definitions the Bible uses. And one is command. They all have to do with authority. The, but the first one is command, as in I charge you. It's a verb. I charge you. I command you to do something. 
The second one is authority in general. Like, I've put this in your charge. I've put this in the Levites' charge under their authority. And the third one is to accuse or to hold responsible. Like in Acts chapter 7, whenever the Pharisees are about to stone Stephen, and Stephen submits himself to the death humbly, and he asks Christ, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Don't hold them responsible for this. I don't accuse them of this. Or in Job chapter 1, after Job has been put, had, had all these plagues put on him, all of these miserable things, his family dying, and, and boils head to toe, all of these things. Job 121, Job says, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. He didn't accuse God. He didn't charge him as in a cost or a fee. That doesn't make any sense. It's just not the way, the, I'm not saying charge doesn't mean that. I'm saying the Bible doesn't use it that way. And so when we study the Bible, and we, use, and, and we just let it define itself, we understand. Well, some might say, and I know some because I was reading on the subject, some might say, well, the Greek says cost. The Greek means cost. Well, I don't speak Greek, do you? I got an English Bible in my hand, and in this English Bible, God uses the word charge one way, three ways. Not that way. So let's just assume that God meant it when he said it the way that he said it, right? Trust the book that's in your hands, friend. Not some language you don't speak. Anyway, Paul uses that word charge here as an accusation. When Paul preaches the gospel willingly, he makes the gospel unaccusable. Well, unaccusable of what? Well, keep reading. That I abuse not my power in the gospel. What, well, what power is that? That's the, that's the context. Remember verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 9? Have we not power to eat and drink? Verse 5, have we not power to lead about a sister or a wife? Verse 6, have we not power to forbear working? It's liberty. It's freedom. And so he says that I abuse not my power in the gospel. Don't forget the context that we're talking about liberty. That's what he's saying. In the gospel of Christ, you are free, but as we saw in 1 Corinthians 8, you can abuse that power selfishly and become a stumbling block. See that? So the answer to our earlier question, why does Paul refrain from things that he has liberty to partake in, the answer is so that he can preach the gospel without charge, unaccusably. Because when we as Christians overindulge in our liberties— to the point of casting a stumbling block in front of a weaker brother or sister, we are tainting our gospel witness. That's what we're doing. When we overindulge in our Christian liberty, it taints our testimony, and thus it blemishes the gospel. It makes the gospel look hypocritical or weak or unimportant to the people who say they hold it. See that? Paul says, I'm not going to make the gospel accusable. I'm not making it chargeable. Paul says, in essence, if I'm blameless, then the gospel is blameless. That's why I refrain from some things. If I'm blameless, then my message is blameless. I'm not going to let my power or liberty hinder the gospel of Christ because it is without charge when I live this way. That's what he's saying. So, not only does he preach it humbly, and not only does he preach it passionately and understand that he's responsible in so doing, he's blameless when he does it because he, he has the wisdom to balance his liberty. That's what he's saying, which is what he says when we continue in the passage. Verse 19, look back at 1 Corinthians 9. For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself, there's the made man, I'm free from all men, yet I have made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And so the next we see the biblically made man yields himself a servant 
submissively. Yields himself a servant submissively. Notice the juxtaposition that Paul uses here when he says who he is in Christ versus who he is made himself, free will choice, to be. I'm free, but I make myself a servant. He's a made man. He's a biblically made man. The word made means become. He's becoming something that he is not. It means transforming into something different, which reminds me of Philippians chapter 2 that we talked about earlier in verse 5. Paul says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, because he was equal with God. Amen? Verse 7, But made himself, became something else of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Jesus was a made man. He made himself a servant. Paul made himself a servant. So should we. Humbly, submissively. How do we do that? Well, Paul gives, him, gives examples of how he did that. Look at verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 9. He says, And unto the Jews I became made myself as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, as without law. And then he gives the parenthesis, saying, listen, I'm not indulging in sin. He's referring to the Jews versus the Gentiles. The Gentiles are not under the law. The Jews were under the law. That's what he's referring to. That's why he gives that parenthesis there, so that our, us carnal Christians can say, oh, so if I'm going to reach my friends with the gospel, I can just go do what they do? No, you can't. You're still under the law to Christ. Then I might gain them that are without law. Verse 22. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. The weak? Well, that's 1 Corinthians 8. Weak in the faith. See that? I became as weak in the faith, even though I understand that those meats offered unto idols are nothing. See the context? These all go together. I made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Paul willingly yielded submissively his liberty to reach his intended audiences. Whether Jew or Gentile, or whether strong or weak in the faith, he's made all things to all men. And so we have some examples from Paul. I just wanted to give you historically how Paul did this. He's not just saying it, he did. It's in the Bible. Acts 21. Acts 21, this is a story about Paul. It says, And when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James. And all the elders were present. And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. Paul is preaching to fellow Jews. Paul was born a Jew, was a Pharisee before he was saved, and he's preaching and telling them things that are happening in his ministry to the Gentiles. Verse 20, And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. They said, hey, these guys who believe, it says they believed, I don't know that they're saved, but it's saying they believe in Jesus, but they're also still under the law because they don't know any better yet. They're saying, they're hearing that you're telling people to forsake Moses and the law, and they want to know what's up. Verse 22, what is it therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they'll hear that thou art come. Do therefore this that we say to thee. They're, they have a request of him. We have four men which have a vow on them. That's 
a, a law custom. You can look it up later if you want to in the law. Them take and purify thyself with them, and be at charges with them, authority, charges, that they may shave their heads, part of the law, and vows. And all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing, but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. They're saying, can you, ju- can you just show them that you're not this crazy person walking inordinately and doing whatever you want? Can- would you be willing to do this? Verse 25, as touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing, save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols and from blood and from strangled and from fornication. So let me ask you, does Paul need to do this? Does he need to purify himself with these guys who had a vow under the law and are gonna shave their heads? Does he have to do all that? Can't he just preach to them, no, 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 listen, guys, you have liberty now. You don't understand. Listen, Paul understands where these guys are coming from because he is a Jew He understands that you can't just go in there and say, nope, it's over. They're not going to hear the message. So look what he does in verse 26. He humbly submits himself. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until an offering should be offered for one of them. He just did it. He just did it. Now, would he have did it if there were other Gentiles? And I, I don't know. I don't know. But that's what he did when he was trying to reach those Jews. It's just what he did. He made himself as under the law. But then when it comes to Gentiles, he didn't always do that. In Galatians 2, we hear about the story where where Peter was, of course, living in his Christian liberty, but then when Jews came around, he separated himself from the Gentiles and went and hang out with the Jews because he didn't want to ruffle any feathers, and Paul calls him out on it. Galatians 2.11, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles, but when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. He was scared of what his homeboys thought. Verse 13, And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him. They followed him, insomuch that even Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. So Peter was leading people away from doing what's right. So verse 14, When I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of the Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? He's saying they don't have to do that, and you know it. Because verse 19 For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. So Paul didn't always do the things that were under the law, because when he was trying to reach those that were not under the law, he became as one not under the law. See that? He's a made man. And then we get to the weak in the faith thing, and that's just 1 Corinthians 8.13, where he says, Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I'll eat no flesh, while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. I'm not going to offend the weaker brother just because I have liberty to do these things. I am made all things to all men. Paul led by example. He didn't just talk the talk, he walked the walk. Why does he do that? Why does he restrict his liberties and his freedoms and his powers in such a manner? Why does he make himself something else? Back to 1 Corinthians 9, he answers the question for you. Verse 23, And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. I do it for the gospel, man. I do it for the gospel. He's a gospel-centered man. He does it so he can preach the gospel blamelessly and willingly and passionately. That's why he does it, and unchargeably. 1 Corinthians 10, in the next chapter, a spoiler, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they might be saved. That was his perspective. That was his position. 
That's why he made the choices he made. That's the mindset of the biblically made man. He is a gospel-centered man. And it's also the paradox of the Christian life. Because yes, you are free in Christ. The gospel has made you free indeed. But you are a servant to all. Right? 1 Corinthians 7, backtracking in the book a little bit. Verse 22, For he that is called in the Lord being a servant is the Lord's free man. Likewise, also he that is called being free is Christ's servant. (laughs) If you're free, you're a servant. If you're a servant, you're free. You're both. You're free to some things, but you're a servant to some things too. So can I ask you something? Can you truly say yes to God if you've never said no to yourself? Can you truly say yes to God if you've never hindered, willingly submitted, willingly yielded yourself a servant? Paul said no to himself all the time for the bigger picture of saving souls. It's a message we need to hear, guys, especially in Laodicean time that we live Because it doesn't matter how spiritual we might think we are. In our flesh, we are selfish and carnal and comfortable. That's just how we are. We prefer comfort. And we need the Bible to make us uncomfortable. We need it to remind us how we ought to be and not how we want to be. We gotta remind ourselves that our flesh is gonna constantly creep in and try to make us complacent with how we are. Never be complacent with how you are. Always be striving to be more like Christ. Can you truly say yes to God if you've never said no to yourself? Because the biblically made man or woman yields themselves a servant submissively, not just to Christ, but to everyone. That's the big picture. Yes, you're a servant to Christ. You're a servant to everyone, though, now. That's the point. Next, the biblically made man runs the race intentionally. Verse 24, he preaches the gospel willingly. He yields himself a servant submissively. And he runs the race intentionally. Verse 24, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run, that ye may obtain. So Paul's going to conclude this chapter by likening our duty as Christians to a race. Preaching the gospel, evangelism, it's like a race that we must run and we have a goal in mind. We're not just meandering through this Christian life haphazardly. There is a finish line. There is a race to run. There is an intentional route. There are things we must do. And so we must be intentional in our running as well as our preparing. He says, don't you know that runners run a race to win? They're not just participating. He says, and only one gets the prize, by the way. He says, only those who run well are rewarded. So run well. Run with this intention, he says, to obtain, to get the reward, to win. He says, I got my mind on my rewards and rewards on my mind. That's what he says. That's in your notes. He's got rewards on his mind. Well, that just sounds carnal. Is it? (laughs) Paul says it. It's in the word of God. It's not carnal. He says, if you remember that there are rewards at stake, maybe that will help you to keep your running intentional. That's what they're there for. And by the way, God rewards those who obey him. You reward your kids when they obey you, don't you? Maybe not every time, but you certainly reward your kids. So does God. Think about it. Have you ever run a 5K or a 10K or something? I did like twice. I don't really enjoy running. But have you ever ran or walked in a, in a 5K fun run? There's like, there's no prizes. It's just for charity. And like, nobody's trying to win those things. Like if you see a guy at a fun run who's got his really, really short shorts on and he's over there training and he's like, and, and you're over here like, I'm just trying to finish. <laughs> nobody's trying to win a fun run. Well, the Christian... Race is not a fun run, friend. There are goals. 
There are prizes. And Paul says, run that you might obtain them. It's not carnal. That's just good planning. That's intentional. Paul already talked about, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 3 just for a second and remind ourselves about these rewards. 1 Corinthians 3.11, for other foundation can no man lay that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold or silver or precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day, the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, judgment seat of Christ, shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If, if any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a ward. You know, precious stones and gems, they don't burn up. So if they're still there at the end, man, you get rewards for that. Great job. You took the investment that I gave you and you didn't hide it in a napkin. You invested in it. And I'm going to reward you for that. God's an investing man. Verse 15. If any man's work shall be burned, wood, hay, stubble, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yes, so is by fire. Because the judgment seat of Christ isn't about your salvation. It's about what you did with what God gave you. And so if you run this race intentionally, realizing that there's rewards and keeping those rewards in mind, it'll help you. It'll help you to run this race intentionally. Look at verse 25 again. Every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible he says, Paul, Paul says, listen, those guys are more disciplined than you. They're running the race to win a, a temporary earthly prize. We are running this race for an eternal, incorruptible prize. We ought to be a little more disciplined, don't you think? So let me give you something, and we're not going to study this out. You can look them up on your own, but I'm going to give you four crowns, four Christians to strive for. That's better than a Wendy's four for four right there. You get a crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4, for those who love the Lord's appearing. You get a crown of life in Revelation 2 for those who give their life for Christ, either spiritual or physical death or spiritually dying daily to self. There's a crown of rejoicing for you in 1 Thessalonians 2 if you win souls for Christ. And there's a crown of glory in 1 Peter 5 if you shepherd believers in the faith. There's four crowns for you to strive for. Now run that you might obtain. Don't just meander haphazardly around this Christian life. Like, the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years just walking in circles. There's a goal. There's a race to run. There's a prize at the finish line. So run that you might obtain. Get your rewards in, on your mind, and, but you also got to keep your priorities in order. You got to keep rewards in mind. You got to keep priorities in order. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 25. Again, every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate. In all things. Mastery just means victory. If you're striving to be superior or to win or to be victorious, then you got to be temperate. Paul says anyone who strives to win is temperate. It's moderate, balanced, not excessive. Temperance, that's one of the nine fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. It's one of the seven steps of spiritual growth in 2 Peter 1. You can't get away from temperance if you want to grow in the Lord and actually accomplish something of worth for him. You just can't get away from it. You gotta be temperate. And Paul says that I don't run uncertainly. You know why? Because marathon runners don't sit on the couch and eat barbecue Fritos while binge watching The Office on Netflix. That, that's a really specific example. Hell, I don't run many marathons. 
But they don't do that because they've got a goal in mind. They're training. They're preparing their bodies. They're putting thousands of steps in, and they're putting hundreds of hours into preparing to win that race to obtain the prize. And Paul says, therefore, I run this way not uncertainly. I've got certain intentions and priorities. He says, I fight. That's another picture. So the the picture of the Christian life is a race. It's also a fight. He says, I fight with purpose. I don't just flail my arms about hoping to hit somebody, not as one that beateth the air. I've got intentions. I've got purpose. And in order to do this, he keeps his body under subjection. He's disciplined. He's blameless. He restricts himself intentionally. See, all of this fits together. In order to do this, he is disciplined, and he, and he trains, and he prepares his body. So let me ask you, Christian, do you have your priorities in order? Are you running this race intentionally or, or are, are you just a random participant? Don't be a random participant. Run the race intentionally. There is, a, there is a goal. There's a finish line. There are rewards at stake. And you know what? There are souls at stake based on how you run this race. He shows the pictures again. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. That's the discipleship chapter, right? Well, he talks more than just about discipleship there. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. Thou therefore, my son, he's speaking to Timothy, his son, his disciple in the faith, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. If you're going to do this thing right and run this race, you're going you're to multiply yourself and other people. You're going to reproduce yourself and other Christians. That's discipleship. Verse 3. Thou, therefore, if you're going to do this, therefore, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You're a soldier, Christian. You're in a fight. You're in a race. And if you're going to do this thing right and you're going to live a life that reproduces in others and you're going to make disciples, you're going to have to endure hardness because the enemy is going to be barking at your door. No man that warreth, no man that goes to war, entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. He's intentional. That he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. And if a man also strive for masteries, there's our, there's our picture of the, the race again. Yet is he not crowned, except he strive lawfully. So we see the pictures again, fighting and running. If you're going to go to war for the Lord, you can't get wrapped up in the affairs of this life. It'll choke you out. If you're going to run this race for the Lord, you can't get wrapped up in the affairs of this life. They'll trip you up. You've got to run this race intentionally. Don't get wrapped up in the cares of this world, Laodicea. They'll make you complacent. They'll hinder your growth. If you're not sure about that, go back to the Gospels and look at the parable of the seed and the sower. You've got one seed that falls among thorns, and it has root. It's growing, but you know what? The thorns get wrapped up, and they choke it out so that it doesn't bear fruit. It's got root. It's saved, but it doesn't bear fruit because the thorns choke it out. That's what the affairs of this life will do. It'll hinder your ability to bear fruit. By the way, notice verse 5. You don't get a crown unless you strive lawfully. It's interesting. I love that he says that there. If you're going to strive for the mastery, if you're going to run this race and strive to win, you can't cheat. You only get rewards if you do it for real. There's no cheating in God's race. You might have the world fooled. You might have your church fooled. You might have your family and your pastors fooled. But you can't fool God. You can't fool him with fake spirituality. Pro athletes might find ways to dope without getting caught, but I'm telling you what, the Christian can't cheat his way to winning. You actually have to put the work in. And God knows. God knows. You have to have your priorities in order. That's the key. You got to run intentionally with priorities in order. 
This is how Paul willingly chose to make himself. He was a biblically made man for the sake of the gospel. And so the biblically made man or woman is going to preach the gospel willingly. He's going to yield himself a servant submissively, and he's going to run the race intentionally. So I just want to ask you today, does that describe you? Does that describe who you are? If not, will you heed God's word this morning and make yourself to become like this? That's why we go to church, y'all. That's why we open the word of God. If this ruffled your feathers a little bit, good. Make yourself like this. Become a biblically made man or woman. Grow. Be transformed. Become the man or woman you should be. That's half of the race right there, is being who you ought to be. I challenge you at the beginning of our time together to not allow yourself to walk out those doors the same person that you walked in. So you've heard God's word. So now examine yourself, examine your life in light of the pages of these scriptures and determine if it is worth the cost of changing. If Christ is worth the cost of changing. Something we should have done at salvation. But you know what? Our feet get a little dirty as we walk through this world. And we need to wash our feet. And we need to be reminded of what we've been put on this earth to do. Romans 12, 1 and 2, some of my favorite verses in the Bible. Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you, sub that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. It's not unreasonable, right? And be not conformed to this world. What's the opposite of being conformed to this world? Being transformed, become made, by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and practical, or perfect, sorry, will of God. Are you willing to be transformed, to have your mind transformed by the word of God? Because you have two options. You can be conformed to the world or you can be conformed to the word. That's the two options he gives you right there. If you're not gonna be conformed and transformed by the renewing of your mind in this book, you're gonna look more and more like the world. So heed God's word this morning. Are you willing to be transformed by this book? I wanna leave you with this. Hebrews chapter 12. Would you turn there with me? It's the last place we'll see today. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Christian, a great cloud of witnesses surrounds you today. And you have been handed the baton of the gospel and of faith from the weary hands of millions of faithful people who have run this race before you. So I beg of you, dear Christian, as your heart grows tired and your feet grow heavy, and as your faith is fatigued and your stamina dwindles, look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. And let us lay aside every weight and that horrid sin that so easily besets us that you keep meddling with and keeps hindering your faith and keeps hindering your growth. Lay it aside, lay aside every race and run this race intentionally 
and yield yourself submissively and preach the gospel willingly and obediently and passionately and humbly, right? And, and, and blamelessly so that when we, are, we see our Savior face to face one day, we might hear those glorious words. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou in to the joy of the Lord. Let's pray.